Welcome to the East Main Media Podcast, a series of conversations featuring leaders in a variety of subjects, including business, politics, media, and the arts. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com forward slash podcast. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. Now here's your host, Brian Brodor. Today I'm joined by composer-producer Stu Goldberg. So let's jump right in. Stu, tell me how your career has evolved over the years. Okay, yeah, good. I guess you could say I've had three different careers in music. Everything I've done has always been in music since I was a young kid, but uh, three phases. My first phase was as a performer and a recording artist. And all I ever wanted to do since I started playing the piano, which is when I was 10, was go on the road and be a touring jazz musician. And I devoted all my energy towards that and did that, luckily, in my 20, you know, started with uh, John McLaughlin and the Mahavishnu Orchestra when I was 19 and played off and on with John for five years in three different bands of his. And in between, uh, worked with lots of luminary leaders all over the planet and toured and recorded. And then started doing my own concerts and my own tours, both as a solo piano, acoustic piano, and also with a trio. And I did uh, one album with this, uh, a trio plus a string quartet and percussion and woodwinds. And that was my focus up until around 1984. A few years earlier, I got married, we had kids, and we were living in Germany at the time. And I realized that things were changing in the music business and the touring jazz musician field was not going to be lucrative forever. Also, I felt it was not very effective to be a, a family father on the road 250 days a year. So I said, what can I do in music and still feed my family and be an effective family father? I said, oh, I'll become a film composer, which I didn't think was so outlandish at the time. I mean, I'd had training and, and I guess we can get into my schooling and all that. But I've had training in composition and orchestration and all that. So I wasn't daunted by the technical aspect of it, but I had no idea the difficulty of the politics. And like I say, we were living in Europe at the time. We moved everyone to Los Angeles. I didn't know anyone. And I thought I was going to be this big film composer. And I took many steps back <laughs> and I was relegated to, well, I shouldn't say relegated. I had the opportunity to play uh, keyboards in the recording orchestras in Los Angeles which was actually the best training I could ever have had as a composer, because I got to see how many different composers solve similar dramatic and political situations in their own style, dealing with their film scores and with directors and producers and how they solve problems. So it was actually the best education I could have ever had as a film composer. So that, I guess, was my second phase of my musical career was as a studio musician. And my third phase was when MIDI came out and I immersed myself in this new world of digital instruments and computers and technology and programming. And I became somewhat of a programmer in Los Angeles, uh, programming sounds in my work as a studio musician because we were required on the spot not only to sight read music, but to also come up with sounds on demand. You know, as the composers would say, I need something that does this, that or the other. We had to be able to do that in no time at all. So it was great to learn on the spot and have to be under time pressure. 
and I built a uh, MIDI recording studio and my first recording studio in the middle 80s. And I, I was one of the first guys in Los Angeles to have a functioning uh, recording studio that had sophisticated MIDI and multi-track tape recording for film and television. That was a huge advantage, I would imagine. It was. <laughs> and it wasn't easy. And it's, uh, as you must know as a studio owner, it's a continuous black hole. You keep throwing money in this thing uh, <laughs> yeah. and trying to keep up with all the technology. And we can get into that a little bit later, I guess. But through my work in the studios with and meeting many composers, I found that a lot of them, at that time, they didn't have their own studios. And they needed help. They needed someone who understood the technology, who also could read music and understand reading scores and understand the mindset of what a composer needed to help them finish their scores and get them produced and delivered. So I had unbelievable training working under fire in the foxholes with all these composers finishing their scores and delivering them and trying to make them as high quality as possible while meeting these uh, ridiculous deadlines. So that continued for several years, and then I had some very lucky breaks with some of these composers were involved in projects they got so busy that they didn't want to do anymore. They didn't have time to do, and some of the more generous of them actually recommended me for jobs, which isn't that normal in the music business. Normally, composers are usually a very covetous lot, and they don't give things up. Instead of turning down a job, you take as many as you can, and you farm out what you can't do. In other words, hire ghostwriters and people to help you finish the music. So some of, some of these composers were so generous to actually recommend me by name to various projects, and I got my start as a composer, which is my third phase of music business and what I'm still doing today. So I guess I started getting my first credits as a composer around 1989, 1990 or so, and it continues up until now. And in 2004, our family, we moved up to British Columbia, from Los Angeles, which is uh, where I am now, because we wanted to get out of the rat race. I realized that most of my work was done remotely. I rarely ever met with clients. I rarely ever met with directors and producers, maybe a spotting session or going to a screening after the movie or meeting one time before the movie, but almost never during. <laughs> so I said, man, I could live on the moon or live anywhere I want. I might as well live where I want. So we, we came up to this beautiful place and that's where we live. Let me jump around a little bit here. So in your mind, was there a moment where you had that first, quote, real scoring gig or where you sort of pinched yourself, said, hey, I'm doing this. Can you tell me how that evolution, did it click? Was it gradual? How did that transpire uh, for you? It was extremely gradual. And there's a lot of gray areas because <laughs> as a studio owner, before I was scoring for credit, I did a lot of what is called ghostwriting. In fact, I had a whole career as a ghostwriter. And the job of the ghostwriter is to help the composer finish whatever project he has in his own style so that it's seamless and indistinguishable from any other music that he might have written. And I got to be really good at that. And it's a fantastic challenge and a fantastic learning experience to immerse yourself in the sensibilities of a different artist and be able to create meaningful scores that make sense and fulfill the dramatic obligations, but still remain in the style of this artist. So I've been super fortunate with the different situations I've been in to learn from the best. So I don't regret any of that. But as a composer under my own name, I wasn't doing that. And I first got a chance to do that much later after I had already been effectively doing that for years. So, yeah, to answer your question, there wasn't a bolt of lightning. It happened gradually. 
Wow. I want to note for our conversation, you know, what really got us on the phone, which I personally find interesting. I operate a studio and I have a great team and we do a lot of television. And when the weekends come, I like to sit back, you know, and, and hang out with my family. I, I know you appreciate that too, obviously. And I'm a fan of mystery and sci-fi and quote, scary movies. And I was watching something on sci-fi. It was a show called Ice Road Terror, I think. Yes. Um, and I knew nothing about it. And I was watching a particular scene right in the middle of the movie. And, you know, my ears sort of perked up. And it occurred to me that I really liked the music cue. Now, that's me. I'm sure the average listener wouldn't be sitting there like, wow, you know, great string pass or whatever. But it just occurred to me. I was like, whatever's going on here, I was turned on by it. You know, I, I thought, wow, something's going on here. And I, that doesn't happen to me very often. Certainly, if I go to a, quote, big budget Hollywood movie, you know, I'm always sort of listening for that stuff. But I wasn't in that mode at all. I was just relaxing, flipping around to some television. And it caught my ear. And I just flipped open my computer and said, wow, what's going on? Who scored this? And that was the doorway looking into your career and what you've done. And it was not only the large amount of uh, scoring you've done, which I respect. And I was amazed, like, wow, this is great. And I've really found somebody who came on my radar that I wasn't aware of. And I was really into it. So I started digging in. And then I found your jazz background, which, of course, I enjoyed because, you know, I went to Berklee College of Music and I'm, I'm sort of hip to that world, too. So I wanted to temper our conversation with that. That's sort of how I got to you. Uh, Brian, I forgot. What is your instrument? Oh, geez. What isn't it, right? Um, oh, you're multi-instrumentalist? Well, you know, I was a drummer for a long time and I came up coming out of appreciating classic rock, of course, as a young kid. But I'm probably a couple years younger than you. So I came up in the late 70s, early 80s. So I was listening to a combination of progressive music, but classic rock, and then very quickly into jazz. But when I went to Berkeley, I always share the story that I was in there not auditioning. You know, I was in Berkeley, but you get your ratings. You go in and they rate you for what level of performance classes you can get into. And sitting outside those rating rooms, I knew that in four years, if I stuck through my four years at Berkeley, I still wouldn't be as good as these great players I was hearing in the rating rooms. And that sort of dawned on me. So I really was there to take advantage of the technology. And I know you'll appreciate this because you were building these MIDI studios. Digital Performer and Pro Tools didn't exist at that time. And, you know, I was using Kurzweil and Oberheim Expanders and a combination of analog and the original DX7. These were the technologies that we were using. So I was getting steeped in MIDI, which was brand new. This is mid 80s and had a lot of momentum. But, you know, I still did study drums, but I knew that, you know, look, I wasn't going to be on the road with Chick Corea. You know, I wasn't going to be on the road with John McLaughlin. Hello. So that's where I came at it. So when I came out of Berkeley, I started managing a studio. And again, you'll appreciate this a two inch 24 track analog console, but I started running the MIDI rig. So that gave me a huge advantage in this smaller project studio in the, in the Northeast. So I started drifting away from being a drummer way over 20 years ago now. So 
these days I'm a jack of all trades. So I've got to jump on the keyboards and write cues both as a keyboardist and also certainly leaning towards synth gear. You know, I took a note when you were talking about doing sessions and having to program synths and get sounds. Hey, I get it. I really do get that. And now that world is very different for us because we can dial up almost anything we need at our fingertips. We didn't have those tools back in the 80s, that's for sure. And certainly younger guys coming up now don't understand that. They don't understand we had to understand filter and resonance and all of the stuff on the fly. It's interesting, you know, how stuff has changed. But anyway, to your point, I mean, what do I play now? If I was going to have an instrument, it might be bass. That bridges the world of the groove of a drummer, but with the harmonic content. So I have a number of basses that sit around the studio here, and I, I love jumping on them when I can, but I'm really the studio guy running the, the studio joint. Cool. Uh, yeah. I get to work with a lot of great musicians operating at a very high level. A good friend of mine is Tobias Ralph, the drummer for Adrian Ballou. And I get to hang with those guys. And I do miss being the musician, but I get to live in that world a little bit. And certainly I live vicariously through guys like you and it comes full circle. So I appreciate the work that high end people are doing, which prompted our phone call. So, you know, again, I, I thank you for you know, lending your time. My pleasure. I don't want to forget to ask you about a word that you said in your introduction, which is politics. We have a joke around our studio here that, you know, everything is politics. And we certainly do a lot of political work in our television stuff. But could you elaborate on that a little bit for me? Tell me about what politics means to you in that world and the world that you work in. But elaborate on what your experience was discovering politics. Okay, well, happy to. For example, I came from a, a very successful jazz career in Europe where I was playing solo piano to sold out concert halls, 5,000 people. I was doing the same venues, the same circuit as uh, Rubenstein and Polini, but I was playing original jazz music, doing like the Keith Jarrett type of thing. And uh, I came to LA and nobody knew me and nobody cared what I'd done. And I was immediately absolutely at the bottom. I mean, I could go to a session and I'd be asked to get coffee for people. And that's what I did. And I did it gladly without an ego, just because that's what I'm calling the politics. I mean, you had to work your way up the ladder. Just to be noticed in the session world, the politics would insist that you would need to be a congenial, funny guy, tell good jokes, good stories not have an ego, be easy to hang out with and get along with. And those are the guys that get the jobs, not the brooding intellectual. Mm. <laughs> so that's what I mean by politics. And the same applies in composition work. Ten composers might be equally gifted and equally capable. The, the one who tells the best stories and hangs out and is the most congenial and gregarious, that's the guy who's going to get the job. And it is a little contrary to my nature, because by nature, I'm not like that. So sometimes I have to play a little bit of a role playing and try to find something that's more entertaining to talk about than maybe what my nature is. And that, for me, is political. You know, in musician circles, it sounds like you're describing, you know, it's the hang. It's it's, it's, the, it's all about the hang. <laughs> it's all about the hang. Right. The guys who hang are the guys that work. Wow. What are your thoughts on... The way that is now, is it exactly the same? Is it changed because we're more isolated as creators? I think the intangible things that politics of one of them have more importance than they used to, even more, I'd say. I mean, the tangible things, which are your skill, you know, your training, what you're capable of, what you're talented in, 
all of the things you've learned and all the capabilities you have, those are kind of taken for granted. Those are givens. Everybody's gifted, everybody's smart, everybody's capable. But the intangible things about, you know, who's fun to hang out with, who gets me? I mean, it's all about getting the confidence of your superiors, the, the producers and the directors, getting their confidence that they feel confident to delegate their project's music to you. And that confidence comes from mainly these intangible things. They have to feel like you get what they're talking about. You have to be an amazing listener. You have to be able to translate their jargon, which isn't musical, and translate it into musical terms that you can understand as a musician, but not tell them that they're ignorant and they're not speaking the correct nomenclature. I mean, that has nothing to do with it. You just have to be able to understand them and translate that to something that you can use artistically to give them what they want. And the people who do that best are the most successful. Well, we're going to come back to that. We'll be right back to the conversation after this brief message from our sponsor. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. I want to ask you first about, tell me about your formal or informal music education. And then I want to get to who your influences are musically. Tell me how you uh, started learning music. Well, I started trombone at nine, which I loved. I gave it up after four years. I loved trombone. I had the idea that it was an instrument I could play classically as well as jazz. And I liked that. I didn't want to just be a classical musician. And then when I was 10, I started piano. And as soon as I started piano, I lost that much interest in the trombone. And my parents gave me the usual classical piano lessons. And I wasn't very motivated, I'll be honest. I was kind of a lousy, mediocre student in my teens because I wanted to play what I heard on the radio. Like when I was 10 and 11, I wanted to be able to play songs that I heard on the radio. And I had my first rock band playing professionally when I was 11. And we played dances and stuff like that. And that's what I wanted to do later. As far as influences, I was playing blues. I got interested in the blues and I loved Jimmy Smith on the organ. And Jimmy Smith, who is the one who drew me from blues into jazz, I played organ for many years. I still love organ. And on piano, I loved all the greats. I mean, Art Tatum, Bud Powell, Oscar Peterson, Herbie Hancock, Bill Evans, of course, Keith Jarrett. You name it, I listened to them, and I loved them all. And I saw as many of them as I could live. Obviously not Art Tatum, but Oscar Peterson I saw, and, and, and Keith Jarrett many times, and Bill Evans, I actually met a couple times in New York before he died. And I had great opportunity to meet some of my idols. And I heard all of them and was inspired by all of them. You know, I love hearing about the organ influence. Did you ever spend any time, you know, gigging out with an organ? You know, what, where did Oh, yeah. That... I mean, as a teenager, I had a B3 and two Leslie's. Woo. And... <laughs> And it was, uh, it was amazing how much help you had carrying it before the gig and never any after the gig. <laughs> that, that's what I remember. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I gigged on organ every weekend. And is that more that the, the kind of popular blues stuff, or were you getting into the jazz stuff like Jimmy Smith? Well, too? more and more jazz. I mean, I grew up in Seattle. I was born in Boston. Yeah. Uh, but from the age of six months, we lived in Seattle. And there was quite a vibrant, and still is, a vibrant music scene in Seattle. 
And at the time, there were a lot of clubs, and they had the blue laws back then. You had to be 21, or maybe you still do have to be 21 to even be in the club. But I used to wear a big floppy hat and sunglasses, and I would be like 13, 14 and playing in these clubs. I was always the youngest guy in the band. And, you know, it started off more rock and pop music, but then it quickly graduated to jazz and kind of bluesy jazz. Cool. Like, like, like Jimmy Smith type stuff. It's like the Seattle Steve Winwood. Don't tell anyone the keyboard player is 12. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was quite a prodigy, wasn't he? Yeah, well, he certainly came up killing it at a young age, you know. And, and, but unlike me, he could sing. Oh, yeah. So that's a good point. So not a singer. <laughs> you know, I can sing background vocals, but uh, I would never consider myself a lead vocalist. I, I'm a good vocal coach because you don't need a voice for that. But I wasn't born with the rock star voice at all. What percentage of your career in general, or even just say currently, is vocal music? Not much. Some. I mean, I still produce artists. My daughter's an incredibly talented vocalist. I produced, I don't know, maybe 60 of her original songs. And wow. we did a, two CDs worth of material for her. And she's written material for many of my movies that I've produced and arranged. And I've worked with a lot of great, great singers, but I would still say vocally it's maybe 10% of what I do. Hmm. Almost everything is instrumental. Nice. I want to get to a little bit more deeper dive on some of the film scoring stuff, because I really enjoyed your answer previously talking about translating what the filmmaker wants. I want to get to that. But first, let's talk a little bit about the tools of the trade. This is a nice segue from the B3 organ to what we're doing these days, right? I know you and I had talked earlier when we first connected about Digital Performer, and that's your platform of choice. Can you, in a broad sense, can you tell me what your studio consists of, whether that's a DAW and a console, and can you walk me through the technical tools of your trade? Okay. <laughs> How long do we have? <laughs> as long as uh, you want, actually. No, <laughs> you know, no, but, no, that's okay. But you know yeah, what I mean. I am still using gear that I've had at the beginning believe it or not, which I've augmented over the years, but uh, I rarely throw anything out. Some things I had to retire. I mean, like my wonderful Otari half-inch four-track yeah. with Dolby SR, I had to retire when we moved to Canada because it was just too big to carry. I'm very sad that I don't have it anymore. It was amazing. Dolby SR is amazing. But these days I'm using an analog Mackie console, which I've been using for 20 years now. It's a 32 8-bus, and I've got three 24-channel expanders. And the reason I need so many channels, I think 110 channels on input and 230 or something in mixdown. Wow. I used to have a very elaborate DigiDesign sample cell. Oh, sure. I, I had the most amazing sample cell set up, I think, that anybody ever had <laughs> back in the early 90s. I had an expansion chassis with, I think, 12 yeah. sample cell cards. And I had another two hanging off of my computer. I had 14 cards going at once. Wow. And I had my whole custom library that I had built and designed. I started on Kurzweil 250s. Sure. I have two of those, which I still have. But the sampling was, even though it was 12-bit or 8-bit. Uh, I think you're right. It's 12-bit. Yeah. It was rather limiting, but the programming was so sophisticated that it got around some of those problems. Yeah. Some of the stuff I originally sampled on the curse while I still use. I mean, I've translated it now to uh, Mach 5, which is the digital performer sampler. 
in any case, so yeah, I started on Kurzweil and then I did this sample cell thing, which was amazing. That's why I needed so many channels on my board, which I still have. And I rarely use now more than about eight channels. <laughs> that was the question so, I had, because at first it sounded yeah. like, wow, you're not mixing in the box at all. You're coming out to all these channels. Yeah. But now I, if I hear you correctly, you are mixing in the box a little bit more and you're well, really- I'll tell you, Brian, and this has evolved over time, but I can tell you with complete assuredness, mixing in the box does not give you the throughput that you get by mixing outside of the box. I have yet to hear. You always have to turn down levels and compromise and attenuate everything before everything starts crapping out in the box. You can get much more robust levels and get more throughput if you output stems. It doesn't have to go into an analog setup. It could go to a digital setup, which I have also. Let me continue and I'll explain. Of course. So yeah, I started with Kurzweil, then I had Sample Cell, then I went to doing everything in the Macintosh in Mach 5, which is, like I said, digital performers sampler. And in the last four years, I've been doing almost everything now in contact, which is the de facto standard, to the point now where I've got a slave computer, 32 gigabytes of RAM in a PC that I use only as a slave for sounds. And then in my main computer, my Mac Pro, I've got 128 gigabytes of RAM and everything's loaded to the gills, running over 100 instances of contact and many, many instances of Mach 5 still all using Vienna Ensemble Pro as a networking device that networks into my digital performer software. So all, all of my instruments are loaded at all times. I've got my huge template, my main basic template, which is over 100 gigabytes of stuff loaded and always running. And then on specific projects, I'll have additional sounds that I create for that project, what I call my palette. You know, I try to get my palette of sounds early when I'm working on a score the particular sounds that I find are most indicative of that score, what's going to give it the special flavor. And I save that per project. So I, I have this, you know, 100 gigabytes or so of general sounds I use, plus the special ones that I'm going to use for that project. So that's all running in uh, VN Ensemble Pro into Digital Performer. And I'm using Apogee converters. I've got an Apogee AD8000 and an Apogee uh, DA16. That gives me 24 channels of digital output. And I run everything at 48K, 24-bit. And that's basically it. I mean, I got all, all kinds of outboard gear, and I got millions of plugins in the computer and uh, expanding every day. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, uh, it's a fantastic world. And I do almost everything inside of the box. I mean, my mixing setup is all at Unity. Right. on my analog board. I'm not doing any fancy mixing on the analog board. I used to, but not anymore. Right. Now now everything, all the automation is done in the box. And I, I love in the box mixing. I just don't think that the in the box has the, the robustness to handle the amounts of level that I like to have. So that's why I, I put a whole lot of stems, well, not that many stems, four stereo stems into my analog board and with that i can do just about everything but if it's a, if it's a vocal album i'll use more i'll use all 24 channels of my digital outs into my board because sure. i love to have all the vocals coming out of their own stems and the background vocals and the lead vocals and all that stuff i like to have about eight channels of vocals and i would out. imagine you have the ability to process those in the analog world 
you know, which yeah, that might be an option. Go it, through it is, although more and more I don't. Right. <laughs> I mean, right. I got all kinds of cool outboard gear back from the 70s and 80s and 90s that I've kept. And I mean, I've got Lexicon reverbs. I've got Eventide H3000, yeah. you know, all, all that kind of stuff, which I love, but I rarely use anymore because the, the stuff in the box is so cool now. And it's so automated. It's so amazing to have everything automated that I rarely go to an analog processor hmm. anymore. So I'm fascinated about, I want to dig into the stems detail of, of your workflow. And this is still purely the technical side of things. We haven't talked about the creative side of the composing, but the stems, you know, we're all used to working with stems at some level. I want to ask you about delivery. So if you're going to print. Delivery, I'm an absolute purist. <laughs> I insist as much as possible in delivering no stems. Right. You want to give the mix. I want to give them the mix. And I'll tell you why. Because every time I give stems, they end up making their own cues out of them. Oh, yeah. Which is not what I wanted. It's a necessary evil sometimes. And some projects demand them and insist upon them. And I give them. But I don't like to give, you know, just the choir or just the drums or just the guitar. Because invariably, they'll leave something out or they'll change the mix or they'll, they'll offset something in some weird way that suits their purposes. But it just kills the music. So you, I, I'm very open and generous in doing remixes as much as they want. And I demo everything in advance, every note of music they've heard a thousand times, and they can go into as much detail as they want and make me change things. And I'll change the mix. I'll do anything they want, alternate mixes, whatever. I'll give them five alternate mixes if, if that's what they want and let them choose one. I don't mind to do that, but I dislike delivering stems. Now this, of course, like I said, sometimes you have to give them stems. You can't get around it. But in general, I don't like to give them stems. I use stems for my own use just to output more audio into my analog world because yeah. I think it sounds better. This conversation is fascinating to me because this is that workflow piece of how do we get from A to Z. And I love talking about the letter M and N and right in the middle, you know, like where are we at? <laughs> I have one more question on your workflow. Can you elaborate how, I'm going to use this word in quotes, how a typical scoring project how does that workflow roll out for you from the phone call, email to you, you know, hey, here's a new gig for you, all the way to you're done and you're paid? You know, can you elaborate what that process is? Yeah, there isn't just one process. It's very individualistic depending on the team that I'm working with, and it's always a collaboration. And I don't try to impose my way of working overly on people, but I do give suggestions to say, you know, this is the way I like to work, and if that works for you, that this is what I have found has been useful for me. For me, unlike many composers, I like to compose in show order, meaning I like to write the music as I see it on the screen. Yeah. I get the gig, I see the movie, I listen to the temp music, I see their rough cuts, I see the fine cut, I see the final cut. I usually don't start writing until the locked picture because I hate changing things. Yeah. And I'm a very intuitive person and musically when I get an idea, usually the first idea is the best one that comes out of me. I'm not one of these guys that labors and I'm not making a value judgment because some composers work better when they labor over things. I mean, I think Beethoven was one, he would agonize over one melody for like three years yeah. and scratch it out and rip it up and have tantrums and, and finally arrive at the most amazing music ever, you know, after dealing with it for, for years. And other composers like Mozart, it would already be written in their head before they would even write it down. Wow. I mean, completed. Mozart would just, he would just write out the parts. 
<laughs> he wouldn't even write out the score. So there's, you know, and everything in between. Well, I, I, in my way of working, I'm more of an intuitive guy. So I, I see the picture, I get a gut reaction. I like to go with my gut because it's usually the most honest and usually the best yep. for me. And I like to write in show order, which means I start at the beginning and go straight through chronologically till the end. And that's how I like to work. Some people don't like that. And if they don't, I can work other ways. I mean, there was one movie and there was a, a baseball movie I did a few years ago. The director wanted me to do the biggest and most climactic cue first, which I did. And then I worked backwards <laughs> and it was fine. I can divorce myself from chronology if I have to. It's just not my preference. Why did that happen? Did they particularly need that emotion? Why were they asking that? This guy was an amazing director, a really nice guy, and he just had this devotion to theme and continuity. He wanted everything to be related to the theme, even the effects shots, the slow-motion baseball pitches with the ball curving and doing wacky stuff. He wanted that to be theme. He didn't want... I mean, normally I would go to sound design for a shot like that. <laughs> he wanted it to be musically thematic related to the theme of this baseball picture. In any case, I learned a lot from that. It was a really cool concept because, uh, like I say, I would normally go to some backwards, slowed down you know, sound design for a, a slow motion shot of a baseball curving in space, uh, you know, taking 30 seconds to get from the pitcher's hand to the batter. But he wanted it all to be thematic, and it really, I got to say, it really worked great. And I'm glad that he made me do that. And uh, in any case, he wanted that first. He wanted to hear that first, and then once he was satisfied that all the themes were working, then he basically left me alone for the rest of the movie. And I filled everything in after that. Thank you for listening. Join us next week for part two of The Conversation. Today's podcast is brought to you by JLC Accounting, bookkeeping, accounting, tax preparation, and advisory. For more information, visit jlc-accounting.com. That's jlc-accounting.com. This has been a production of East Main Media, hosted by Brian Brodeur. Special thanks to associate producer Morgan Taylor, audio engineer J.P. Conk, senior producer Kayla Galka. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to subscribe and leave us a good rating. For more information, visit eastmainmedia.com. And thank you for listening.